Join me in prayer. Father, it is amazing love that you would die for us, us who pursued you to death, us whose eyes were focused on ourselves, who neither knew you nor loved you. You sent your Son to die for us. So we praise you for that. We pray that that amazing love would spill over into the way that we think and into the way that we act, the way that we speak to others, that we might be a people who love because you have first loved us. So be with us this morning, I pray. pray that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would form us, that we might be people who reflect your image to those around us. That we would be a people not marked by partiality, but that we would be a people marked by mercy. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You all can have a seat. You know, one of the things that I appreciate when the world seems to be in turmoil is that there is something stable and consistent about gathering with God's people to worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so while everything around us seems to be shaking and moving, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in James chapter 2, because our God is a stable God who does not change yesterday or today or tomorrow, but Jesus Christ remains the same. And so in the midst of shaking, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of confusion, I hope that you find a sense of rootedness and hope in us turning back to the book of James. So if you do have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback Bible uh, in the pew rack in front of you. You can turn to James chapter 2 there as well. As you turn there, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a woodcutter. This was his trade. This was what his job was. And he, for some time, had had an axe head with no handle. One day, he decided, it's time to fix this. And so he gathered up his axe handle, and he marched off into the woods. And as he entered the woods, he began looking up and down and around, looking for just the right piece of wood that would make a good handle for this axe. Well, as he began to look around, one of the trees noticed that this man seemed lost, seemed confused, seemed unsure what he was going to do. And so the tree leaned over and said, Sir, can I help you? And the woodcutter said, Well, I'm a woodcutter by trade. I have this axe head, and I don't have a handle for the axe. And I'm looking for just the right piece of wood. Well, without thinking, the tree said, I have just the thing for you. Stood back up, reached up into the branches, pulled down a piece of wood, handed it to the woodcutter. The woodcutter thanked him and left the forest. He then went to his shop where he put the uh, wood in his vise and he shaved it and smoothed it, got it shaped just right, fitted it into the axe head, put a wedge in the top so it would be good to go, slung it over his shoulder and marched right back to the forest. And once he got there, One tree at a time, he began to cut down. He was, after all, a woodcutter by trade. 
we, I think, immediately see the problem here, right? If the tree would have stopped and thought for just a moment, the tree would have seen that it is a senseless act to give a woodcutter a handle for the axe. And not only is it senseless, it's foolish, it's folly, it also, in the end, was self-destructive for that tree and that forest. James is going to show us something similar with partiality this morning. So in James 2, if you're already there, you'll see the heading of it is the sin of partiality, or your Bible may say favoritism. And James is going to work to convince his hearers that for a Christian to show partiality or to show favoritism is actually senseless. It's foolish. It's folly. And not only is it senseless and foolish, it's also self-destructive. So if you're taking notes this morning, the way this is going to proceed is is we're going to follow the woodcutter's story. Just as it was foolish and senseless for the tree to give the woodcutter a handle, so James is going to tell us it is senseless for us as Christians to show partiality. That's the first big group we're going to look at. Then, just as it in the end was self-destructive for the force to hand the woodcutter a handle, James is going to show us that it is self-destructive for Christians to engage in partiality. And the last turn we'll make this morning is James is going to give us a better way. So that's kind of the three big headings we're going to look at. I'm going to go ahead and read James 2 verses 1 to 13 so we can get our lay of the land. And Here's what James says. My brothers... Where your Bible may say, my brothers and my sisters, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is that law? James says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment 
is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word partiality there in Greek is actually two words smashed in together. The words are face and receive. It tends to be used in court places. And so the idea would be the judge sits behind, uh, sits there to look at the person who's in the dock, and he has the option to receive that person's face, to show partiality, to judge them based on their appearance. In the Old Testament, God is said to be not partial. He is not one who receives or lifts the face. He doesn't judge by appearance. He judges with righteousness. He judges with justice. And so we see that if one is to show partiality, they are moving in the opposite direction of God. God is one who doesn't receive the face. God is one who judges impartially without favoritism. And so James starts us off and he says to show partiality is to move in the opposite direction of God. And so James says the logical thing Show no partiality. But James is a reasonable man. He's realistic. He knows how easy this is. And so he gives his hearers uh, a mental picture. He gives them a challenge to think through. He says, imagine that you are gathered together on a Sunday morning like today. And the back door is open. And one man walks in, and then shortly after, another man walks in behind him. And the first man, as we all pivot in our seats and look back, we notice that he has nice clothing on. He's clean. You can look at him and tell that he is wealthy. He carries himself as one who has influence and power. And you begin to think to yourself, he could help us. He has resources. He won't be a drain. He can help us do things that we before couldn't do. And so you find yourself really quickly, instinctively thinking, let's show him attention. Let's make sure he feels welcome so that he comes back. Because we'd love to fold him into our midst. And shortly behind him, another man comes in and he looks a little bit like Linus. You can see the dirt kind of rippling up off of him. You immediately catch a whiff. He's not showered in a while. You look at him and assume, this man needs some help. And it's going to take some work. And instead of giving us things, we're going to have to give him things. James says, you see how easy that transition happens in your mind without you even realizing that it did. It's just instinctive. James says, in that moment, you have become judges, and not impartial judges like God. You've become judges who receive the face. You've become partial judges with wicked thoughts. This partiality business we know isn't new for James. This is something that has plagued humans from the very beginning. In fact, if you think all the way back to the book of Genesis, one of the ways that favoritism was shown then was favoritism was given to the oldest 
son. And so there's a famous story you'll be familiar with. Isaac had a couple sons, Jacob and Esau, and Isaac's favorite son was the oldest. He was partial towards Esau. Now, you know that story, and you know in a strange twist of events, God turns that system on its head, and it's the youngest son who's actually chosen to be the one who receives the blessing. And Jacob takes the blessing, but Jacob, not learning the lesson from his father, marries a couple of women, and what does he do? He picks a favorite. Still not learning his lesson, he has a slew of children, and what does he do? Well, he picks a favorite. He gives him a special coat. And the story ends with Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt. You see, Jacob had been a part of favoritism that wasn't his fault. His father picked favorites. But then Jacob continued to carry on that tradition, and he picked a favorite wife, he picked a favorite son, and this led to all kinds of chaos and destruction and disaster. You won't know this because uh, our English Bibles call James, James, but James's name was actually Jacob. His namesake most likely was Jacob the patriarch. And so James knows that partiality runs deep in our bones, that it comes out easy. If you fast forward a little bit in Jesus' day, you may remember this story. Jesus is, is walking around, and he's got his disciples with him, and then there's this Samaritan village. And they don't receive Jesus. And James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, should we call down fire on this village? Well, that's curious, because this wasn't the only village that had rejected Jesus. But this was the only village that James and John wanted to call fire down on. Well, why was that? Well, it appears that they wanted to do that because they did not like the Samaritans. Jesus tells an interesting story shortly after that where a Samaritan takes the leading role as the good Samaritan. Partiality runs deep. If we were to fast forward even up to more recent days, we could think of lynchings where racial partiality takes a prominent role. We would maybe think of places where people get judged and taken to court, and those we know who have lots of money, who have lots of influence, who have lots of power, who are able to give bribes, tend to get off with things that the rest of us would not. Why is this? Why does partiality run so deep in the human condition? Well, the short answer I would suggest to you is because we are selfish. We tend to choose things based on how we think it will affect us. And so when we encounter someone who we think can give us something, we show preference to them in hopes that we will get something. And when we encounter someone who we think will take from us, we push them off because we are, in fact, selfish creatures. This seems to be what's underlying James, where he highlights the wealthy man and the poor man who come into the church. And James says, you receive the wealthy man and you reject the poor man. Well, like the trees giving the woodcutter an axe handle, 
Partiality, James says, for Christians is senseless. It makes no sense. It's not just sinful, it's also foolish. It's nonsense. And James gives several reasons for this, so let me start us at verse 4. James says, or sorry, verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. What James says is if you've paid attention at all to your Bibles, to the way that God moves in this world, is God moves in a way that is counter to how we tend to. James says, think about who it is that God chooses and picks. It's not mighty Egypt that God saves, but lowly Israel. Paul would say to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise. Instead, God chose what was weak and foolish to shame the strong and the wise. And James says the same thing here. If you've even been paying a little bit of attention, God has a tremendous habit of choosing the poor and the lowly to accomplish his purposes. In fact, just a chapter before, in chapter 1, James tells the rich to exult in their humiliation. And he tells the humble to rejoice in their exaltation. God has a habit of taking the way that we see things and turning them on its head. And so James says, if you act like verses 2 through 4, where you receive the rich person and stiff arm the poor person, what you are actually doing in that moment is you are rejecting the way that God moves. You are actively setting yourself up in opposition to the God that you say you worship. That's a senseless thing to do, right? So James says that, that's one reason this is nonsense for you to show partiality is because it's to reject God's ways. But James says more. Look back at verse 7. He asks this question. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James points out what we all know. It doesn't tend to be the poor and the low who persecute, oppress, and blaspheme the name of Jesus. Who tends to do that? It's the rich, the mighty, the powerful. And so James says, when you show partiality, not only are you rejecting God's ways, but you're also rejecting Christians' experience. Because who historically has been the ones who persecute Christians? It's been the rich, the mighty, the powerful. And so James asks the sensible question, if you were going to show favoritism, wouldn't it make sense to show favoritism the other direction? Like, you see the two men walk in, and you think the rich person's the one who's going to help us, and James says, well, actually, it's more likely that it's the other way around. You see, it's senseless to show partiality based on appearance, because that rejects God's ways, but it also rejects the experience that we've all seen. James says also it's senseless 
Because he says it breaks the law. Verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is this royal law? James says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So to say that we love and worship Jesus the King, and then to reject how Jesus tells us to live, remember the story, Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If we say we worship this Jesus, and then show partiality, James says, you know what you're actually doing? Is you are transgressing this king's law. And the fourth thing that James says of why it's senseless to show partiality is because it denies how God has treated us. He says, to the not merciful, they get no mercy. Mercy, he says, is shown to the merciful. And so if we live and act in a way that's partial, that is to say, not showing mercy, then we deny that God has shown us mercy. There's a connection there. It reminds us of when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and he tells them to pray, forgive us our debts. How? As we have forgiven our our debtors. There's a, a connection here to one action reflects the previous action. And if we don't show mercy, what we confess is we've not received mercy. And so showing partiality, James says, is a senseless, nonsensical thing to do because it denies God's ways, it denies Christian experience, it breaks Jesus' law, and it denies that God has been merciful to you. Now, I would assume you didn't actually need that convincing that partiality is bad. Right, like If you were given, before we started all of this, a true-false test that said partiality is good, you would answer false. You'd pass that test with flying colors. But I think maybe where we do need some correction is we tend to downplay how big of a deal partiality is. So just like for the tree to hand the woodcutter, an axe handle was senseless, it was dumb, it was also self-destructive. So partiality is for Christians. It's not just senseless, it's also self-destructive. When we put it the way that James has, I think we can see this more clearly. So if we were to say, partiality says God's ways are wrong, Partiality says all of Christians' experience is wrong. Partiality is to say, I don't care what Jesus says. And partiality is to say that God has not been merciful to me. Then does partiality not become a much bigger deal? Maybe to push this even a step farther? Would it make sense to say that to indulge in partiality is to renounce Jesus? After all, if you're saying God's ways are wrong, the experience of God's people is wrong, 
Jesus' law is not that big of a deal, and God's not been merciful to me, that sounds like a renunciation of Jesus, but we don't tend to catch that. You see, James, James won't let us off this easy. Did you notice the neighborhood that James locates partiality in? This isn't the neighborhood we tend to put it in. James moves seamlessly from partiality, did you catch that? To murder and adultery. Like he doesn't take a breath. James is talking about partiality, talking about partiality, talking about partiality, and then without hesitating, moves into murder and adultery. It appears that James sees partiality as just as much a problem as murder and adultery. Now, I think if we're honest, that's not how we tend to think about partiality. We think about it as something that's not ideal. We'd rather we didn't do that. It's not nice when someone does that to us. We're sorry, kind of, when we do that to others. But James nestles it right next door to murder and to adultery. But there is a better way. There's a better way than the way that we've been going. And James has answers for us for that. But before we move there, let me do a little thinking with us about maybe where we might see partiality or its effects in our midst. So James seems to take it for granted that the church that he's writing to is showing partiality. That probably means we're prone to it as well. And so my goal right now is I just want to give you a few things to get you thinking and reflecting. Um, hopefully as you meet this evening in your community groups, you can talk about this some more. Um, but one suggestion, one question to examine yourself is uh, when service is over, where do you go? Who do you go immediately talk to? Is it the same people every week? And if it is, do those same people tend to look like you, maybe be about the same age as you, have similar life experiences as you? You see, we, we tend to navigate towards people that are like us. And it's not that we really do this intentionally. We just kind of drift into this. We don't pay attention to what it is that we're doing. So uh, if you're a youth, do you just talk with youth after the service? Or if you're middle-aged, wherever you want to say that begins and ends, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if you're middle-aged, do you just talk to people in the same kind of life stage as you? Or if you're seasoned, are your social circles limited to that? Are we crossing over generational lines is my question. Now, I, I think... At this church, there are some beautiful ways where this is not actually the case. And so I want to praise you for this. I love, after the service is over, seeing so many people stay put and not rush out the doors, talking with people, asking how things are going, being with one another. I love when we have fellowships in all different generations and people in life stages are coming together and spending time together. I love that our committees tend to be wide-ranging in age. I think that's a fantastic, beautiful thing. Um, so my encouragement is keep pressing on this. If, as you examine yourself, you find that you are 
small located in who it is that you spend time with, listen to James. Broaden your circle a little bit. Go meet somebody new after the service is over. Ask them how their week was going. Ask them how you can pray for them. Introduce yourself to them. That's one way I think we are prone to show favoritism. Here's another one. When you hear about somebody famous who confesses Jesus or says something nice about Jesus, how do you respond? Do you tend to get excited? Thinking as if, oh, if we rally all the really good, powerful people together, then God can really work. Like, you wouldn't phrase it that way. But when you hear about somebody famous confessing Jesus as Lord, and you hear about an average Joe confessing Jesus as Lord, does one excite you more than the other? Do you tend to think of God as like a team captain, and he's drafting his players, and you get excited when he drafts what you would think would be a really good player that could really help his his team? Because you see what you're doing when you say that, is you're imagining that God is limited in what he can do based on who he's got on his team. But remember, Jesus didn't choose the politically powerful or the wealthy. He chose a bunch of fishermen. God didn't save Egypt across the Red Sea. He rescued lowly Israel. We tend, I think more than we realize, to do exactly what James says we ought not to. The last place I want to point you to to get you thinking a little bit is racial divides in the church. So uh, MLK famously quipped that Sunday mornings at 11 are the most racially divided time in our nation. I don't know if that's statistically true or not. I don't even know how you'd go about figuring that out. But that's not quite the point. The point is, Sunday mornings tend to be much more racially divided than they should be. We have white churches, and we have black churches, we've got Hispanic churches, and all of this is an effect of partiality by race. Why were churches split and severed generations ago? Because of partiality. Partiality leaves an ugly stain on Jesus' bride. It speaks poorly. Because in Jesus, people who have nothing else in common find common ground. The sins of partiality don't just linger in our present. But the way that we act, the way that we live, the way that we treat others continues on for generations after generations after generations. So James warns us against partiality. But James tells us there is, in fact, a better way. James says we ought to be those who imitate God. And so you remember this. Genesis 1. What does God do? Well, God creates everything that is. Short answer. Day 6, he creates humans, male and female, in his image. And you might stop and ask, well, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, if you keep reading, you find out. To be made in God's image means, God says, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. To be made in God's image is to act like God in God's world. Or if you look over at Genesis 2, Adam is set up as the 
garden keeper. God plants the garden and Adam works the garden. To be made in God's image means to imitate or reflect God. And James gives us two ways that we ought to imitate and reflect God. The first one is in verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, what will you do? You will love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, James says, you are doing well. He calls that the royal law in verse 8. And in verse 12, he calls it the law of liberty. Now, that's not normally the way that we tend to think about laws. We don't think about laws in positive terms like that, but James does. And do you find it interesting that one of James's solutions to partiality is to be a better law keeper? That's interesting, right? Now, this is a different law keeping than maybe we tend to associate with the Pharisees. This isn't James saying this is how you will be justified before God by keeping the law. This doesn't flow from a sense of trying to put God in your debt or to prove to God how good you are. This flows from a sense of love for God, of thankfulness to God, of praising Jesus for his death and so wanting to listen to Jesus. And so James says, if you follow what Leviticus says, if you follow what Jesus repeated, if you love your neighbor as yourself, he says, then you do well. Why do you do well? Well, it's true that you can't both love your neighbor and show partiality. Those two don't mix. If we are loving our neighbor, we are not being partial against them. And so James says one of the ways that we stop showing partiality, one of the ways that you don't do verses 2 through 4, is you listen to what the law says, you love your neighbor, and then you will do well. Because love of neighbor and partiality flow from different sources. One flows from God and the other one from Self. To borrow an image that James will use in just a little bit, salt water and fresh water don't come from the same place, and figs and olives don't flow from the same place. The point is, partiality and love of neighbor are so different that they can't be mixed up. So one way that we don't show partiality is we actively love our neighbor. The second one James says is mercy. Mercy, he says, triumphs over judgment. So why might we be tempted to show partiality? Well, one reason would be because we have forgotten how much mercy we've received. And the minute we forget that we have received mercy, we don't feel obligated to show mercy. This is one of the reasons it is so valuable for us to gather together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, because you and I are a forgetful people. We just forget frequently. But you know what happens when we gather together, when we sing the praises to Jesus, when we pray prayers to this King, when we devote ourselves to the Scripture and reflect deeply on them, is we are reminded that we are in God's debt and that God has been merciful to us. And it is a difficult task to drink deeply at the well 
of receiving God's mercy to walk out those doors and to show no mercy. We might say if you do that, you haven't actually drunk well from the well of mercy. And so James says we are to be those who speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We're to be those who show mercy, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over partiality and favoritism. So, church, twin tasks for you to do. Love your Lord by loving others. That's what Jesus tells us to do. That's what James tells us to do. Reflect well on the fact that you've been given mercy by extending mercy to others. That's where James points us this morning, and that's where I want to leave us. Pray with me. Jesus, you are kind to us in more ways than we can count. We confess that we too often forget the ways that you've been merciful to us. That we tell ourselves lies and act as if we've not needed your mercy. So we pray that you would remind us of your mercy, that you would remind us of your grace. Teach us to be those who don't show partiality because we want to reflect you who is the impartial God. So heal our wounds, we pray. Fill us with your spirit that we might be obedient. And may you be glorified by the way that we live as we seek to follow you by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our King's name. Amen.